All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Tyler. I am the one of the pastors here. And um, after this morning, you can probably just call me the sweaty pastor because that's what I'm going to be this morning. I sweat inside, so it's going to be on full display this morning for you guys. Um, so we've been going through the book of Mark together uh, in this series called Simple and Sacred. And one of the things um, that is awesome about going through a book of the Bible in a series is you get a, a bigger picture of what's going on. You get, you get a little peek into um, the full letter or, or the full gospel or uh, the full chunk of scripture uh, and it's not going to be topical. Uh, it, it, the topics come from Scripture. And one of the things that can be kind of tough in doing this, you can't really skip over pieces of Scripture that make you a little uncomfortable. And um, this week is one of those weeks where the Scripture is just a little strange. And when I first read, or when I first sat down, Jared told me, I would be preaching, um, I thought, what a coincidence that I'm preaching this week, Jared, <laughs> on a, a quite a strange topic. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, he did offer to take it back from me. It was that bad. He was like, I'll take it if you want. But, you know, you're supposed to preach this week, so. Um, and so what we're going to get into today, I'm going to give you a, a quick outline, and then we'll just jump right into it. But the quick act outline here is... We're going to see that there are some wrong theories that are going to be presented about Jesus. There's some theories that some people have about Jesus. Then from Jesus's own mouth, we're going to hear who he actually is. And then at the end of that, we're going to see what that means for us as believers, what it means for us uh, who follow Jesus. So before we get into it, I'm just going to pray for us. Lord, thank you for this beautiful weather uh, for these people gathered here, just for the, the opportunity to gather together. Lord, I pray everything this morning would be uh, of you, that anything that is not would just disappear. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up halfway through Mark in Mark, or Mark 3, halfway through, not halfway through Mark, we got a ways to go. Um, we're halfway through Mark 3, and we're picking up in verse 20. So if you have a Bible, you can pull it out, but this is what it says. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. I told you it was going to be a little strange. <laughs> so it starts off, and his family is coming to town. And they've traveled a long way, um, I think about 30 miles. And why have they traveled so far? Because they think Jesus has lost it. They, they think he's, he's crazy. Something's going on. We need, we need to collect him. Uh, they're worried about him. Maybe his mom is worried that he's not eating. Um, not too sure, but it makes me think of uh, the story of a man in, in an insane asylum who all day and night 
yells, I am Napoleon, I am Napoleon, I am Napoleon. And a, a second man in the room next to him says, hey, who told you that? And the first man says, well, God did. The second man says, no, I didn't. <laughs> See, Jesus is claiming to be God and his family is, is thinking, this is, this is kind of getting out of hand here. So this is the, that's the first kind of theory that pops up, is that maybe Jesus is, is crazy. Maybe he's lost it. The second theory that comes up is from the Pharisees, from the teachers of the law. And they think that he is a liar, that he is actually evil, that he's in league with the devil. Um, so this first theory, he's, he's out of his mind, he's bad. And the second theory, he's in league with the devil. Um, and so why, why do people come up with these theories? What are they doing here? Well, a theory is just uh, really a way to explain the data that you've been given, right? That's what a hypothesis is. And, and so they're trying to make sense of the claims that Jesus has made through Mark 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3. They're trying to make sense of who Jesus says he is and what he's been doing so far. He's so far said that he's the son of man, which is another way to say he's God. He's so far, he's said he has the power to forgive sins. He has said that he uh, is the Lord over the Sabbath. See, they're just trying to make sense of Jesus' claims. And if you think about it, your family would be some of the hardest people to convince that you're actually God, right? I mean, imagine a sibling coming to you and saying, you know what, I've always been existent. And if you come to me, I'll forgive your sins. And, and, and you know what, through me, all things were created. You know, I, I think you'd be fitting him for a straitjacket pretty quickly um, if a family member came to you and started saying that. And so his family starts to think that he might be out of his mind. They're worried. And um, what, what's cool about this is that's not the end of the story with his family. Um, it talks about later on in Acts 1 how his family has abandoned this idea that he's crazy, and they've started to follow him, and they've started to believe him. In Acts 1, they're, they're praying in a room, um, and it says his family is there, and they're, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. His brother James ends up being one of the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and writes the book of James, and when he introduces himself in the book, he says, uh, this, this is James, uh, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they have... They changed their tune, and, and my guess is something about seeing someone who had died and then come back to life uh, makes them realize that they were wrong about him being crazy. And so uh, that's the first kind of idea. And the second idea these Pharisees have is that he's evil. And uh, later on in verse 23, Jesus is going to refute this, but they think he's evil. They don't think he's crazy because they've seen he has power. They've seen that he can do things that no one else can do. They, they've seen that he has this authority uh, from somewhere. And so if, it, if, it's, if it's not going to be from God, they've decided he's got to be evil. He's got to be bad. And he's lying to us. You know, there's only really ever um, three theories about who Jesus is in the Bible that he's either a lunatic, that he's either a liar, or he's Lord. He, he's crazy, or he's evil, or he's, he is who he says he is. 
and, and, and so, you know, modern day, we've come up with a fourth theory that maybe he's just a, a good teacher uh, of love. Uh, he's not Lord, but he's a good teacher of love and peace. And C.S. Lewis actually talks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that, um, he says, I'm trying to hear to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's, he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept that he was and is God. So C.S. Lewis, he knows that there's only really three options. He's, he's a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, because of what he said and what he did. And so Jesus takes on this claim that he's evil, that he's in league with the devil. In verse 23, he picks up and it says, that, wow. It says that Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says. So he's there and he, and he, calls, the, he, he calls the Pharisees over. He says, why don't you come over here? I've got a little story to tell you. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So, a bit of a, a, a strange uh, story here that Jesus begins to, sit, to tell. But at the beginning, he's just really making a practical ar argument. He's saying, if I was in league with Satan, if I, if I was a demon, why would I be casting out demons? It, that would be pretty counterproductive. I mean, he's, he's doing the opposite thing that someone evil would be doing. And so he's, he's saying, you guys are just grasping at straws here. You, you, you know that I'm not from Satan, because that would mean that Satan is divided against himself, and, and that would be it for Satan. That would be it. And then he gets into this... To talk about binding the strong man, the one who binds the strong man. He talks about this house and that there's a strong man who lives in the house. And he says, you know, if you're going to go rob a house, this is probably the first time Jesus gives instructions on how to rob a house. If you're going to go rob a house, you better tie up the guy who lives there, especially if he's a strong guy and he's going to take you out. And he says, so I, a stronger man is coming in to bind this strong man. He's, he's saying here that Satan is a strong man in this house, and yet he has come in to defeat him. He has come in to bind him. In Genesis 3, um, 
Genesis 3 in the Bible is referred to as the fall of man. So in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you have creation and you have everything being good and life is flourishing and there's shalom and there's peace between God and man and, and man and man and man in the earth and everything's going great. And then in, in Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, convinces Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the tree that they were told not to eat from. And everything begins to fall apart, right? It's paradise lost at that point. And, and so things begin to crumble and God comes in and he says a few things and he reveals to us the first prophecy, the first um, promise in scripture in Genesis 3 when he's talking to Satan, when he's talking to the snake, he says that I will put enmity between you and the offspring of Eve. So there's going to be one, an offspring of Eve, a human man, and you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And it sounds a little cryptic at first, but what he's saying is there's going to be someone who comes that destroys you. There's someone who's coming, I've, I've already planned it, that's going to destroy you, Satan. And so when Jesus is speaking here, he's saying, I'm the one. I'm here. I've come. I'm doing it. How does he do it? Uh, Colossians 2, 15 tells us that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He defeats Satan in the way that we would least expect it, by dying. He triumphs through sacrifice. He defeats Satan through the forgiveness of sins, which is why he continues in verse 28, and he says this, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins in every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Well, here's another pretty ominous verse, and at first glance, uh, you might want to just jump over it, skip it, but he starts off with something positive. He starts off and says, you can be forgiven of everything you've done, every sin, every, every bad thing you've said, every bad thing you've, you, you can be forgiven of every sin because of what I'm going to do on the cross. And then he says something that's maybe a little um, difficult to swallow, he makes this little warning here. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. And at first, this might seem kind of like a, a contradiction. He says, you can be forgiven of everything, but if you, do, if you uh, blaspheme the Spirit, then you won't be forgiven. And you might be thinking, well, John 3.16, doesn't it say that, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. That whoever believes, not whoever believes and hasn't done something really bad. And here's, here's really what's going on. I don't want to go into a, too deep a rabbit hole here, but here's what's going on, is that if you think about it, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to show you who Jesus really is. That he's not just some moral teacher, that he is God. That's what the Holy Spirit that's his main job in us, is to show us who Jesus is. And so what he's saying is, is, I am willing to forgive every sin, every bad thing you've done. 
but I won't forgive any sin at all if you're not willing to see that you need forgiveness. If you refuse what the Holy Spirit is showing you. See, you've got to accept his offer of forgiveness. And so, those who do accept that offer of forgiveness, he has a little, uh, a little word for them following this. He says, it says this, continuing on, continuing on in Mark, it says, what does that mean for us? Or no, it doesn't say that. That's what I said. What does it mean for us? It says that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside and they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus says this, who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Here is, uh, here's where this gets a little more practical. Um, uh, first off, I want to make a point that this isn't a, a rip on his own like, biological family. I think if you took this verse out of the Bible and just looked at it, you could say, well, Jesus clearly does not care about his family, and does that mean we shouldn't care about our biological families, like they're not important anymore? Uh, And we know that's not the case. Um, In fact, on the cross, Jesus tells one of his disciples, John, he asks him, take care of my mother. Treat her like she's your mother. So he he does care about his family, but he's, he's... saying that you are actually, we're actually part of a new spiritual family, and, and the connection to this spiritual family is even deeper than genetics. It's deeper than, than flesh and blood. You know, in, in first, this would have been pretty offensive in first century Jewish culture, because the, the family you were a part of was incredibly important. Like, your, your family system was the most important thing, and it was probably the truest part about your identity was, this is the family I'm a part of. And so when Jesus says that the people surrounding him are his mother and brother and sisters, what he's saying is, you have a new identity. You have a new family that you're a part of. There's a new truest thing about you, and it's me. In John uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. He, he's here adopting us into his family. That's why people in the church way back when used to call each other like Brother Paul and, uh, and Sister Brittany. And, you know, that's why they used to, to do those things was this reminder that we are supposed to be a family, we're supposed to be in a community that looks different than anything else out there. And so we are called to this different kind of community, um, but how do we start acting like it? You know, you could say just start acting like a family, but that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, right? That could mean um, if I said start treating me like a family member, you might hit me right away, depending on who your family is. Um, And so... I want to be a little clearer on what it means to to treat each other as family. Um, We get a little picture of what this looks like in the book of Acts in chapter 2. 
Starting in verse 42, it says this, that they devoted themselves, this is the, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this is what it's, it's supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like taking care of one another. It's supposed to look like having meals together with one another. It's supposed to look like sharing life together. But how, how, how do we get there? Because it's easy to say, do community, love one another. But, but really, how do, we, how do we accomplish that goal? Well, the first thing I think we must do is we must be co-workers together. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 3, says... This is Paul talking, and he says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul, writing the Philippians, he calls them partners in the gospel, that they're, they're these kind of co-workers together. And I think in the American church, uh, we have, uh, we've created this mentality that uh, we can come and consume, and um, if it's entertaining enough, I'll stay, but if not, then I'm gonna just, I'm gonna go. And that's not the picture that we get from Paul. He, he calls them co-workers, that, that we're supposed to be in this together, that it's not a come and watch, it's a come and participate. And I think you treat co-workers a little different than you treat customers. I don't know if anyone's worked in a restaurant or, but you don't tend to become best friends with the customers. You, you see them for a little bit, and they're gone. You barely learn their names if you're a good waiter or waitress. But your coworkers tend to become your friends. They tend to be the people that you uh, share stories about those crazy customers with, and, and you, you um, share these experiences together. So we are called to be coworkers. We're all uh, ministers of the gospel, no matter what our profession. We're all in this together. The second thing uh, that we got to realize is that community, being a part of a community like this, isn't optional for believers. You know that there's uh, over a hundred one another verses in, in the New Testament. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another. There's a hundred of these one another verses in the Bible, and it's really hard to one another by yourself. There's really no such thing as, as like churchless Christianity. You have to be part of a community. And I know there's a lot of people who have been hurt by the church or hurt by people in the church, and it can be scary and time-consuming and exhausting to plug into a community, and it's, it's vulnerable and hard a lot of times. But I love what Eugene Peterson says about it. He says that there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church. But there's no other place to be a Christian except the church. Just like your family, you wouldn't toss them aside when they slighted you. We bear with one another in love. It's not optional to, to be part of something. 
as a follower of Jesus. And then finally, we must imitate Jesus' humility. Uh, Philippians 2 gives us a little picture of, of what this looks like. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In this community, we are called to, to put others first. This family, we're called to serve, to not be selfish, to not be self-seeking. It's easy to say and a lot harder to do. And here, here's kind of the cool thing about this family, this new family that Jesus is creating here, this new family that he calls us into. It's not only to show us that we need to treat one another well, that we need to love one another, but it's also the most powerful way that we build the church and accomplish the mission of the church. Um, John, in John 13, says, This is a new command I give you, to love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So what he's saying is, not only is the, the family what you're called to be a part of, but it's also how this thing spreads. It's how we accomplish the mission of the church is, is by loving one another well. Other people will see that and want to be a part of it. When, when you see a family that loves each other well, it's, it's in us to, to be drawn to that. And when we show that the love that Jesus has shown to us, to one another, it puts on dis- the display the sacrifice that God made for us on the cross. When we forgive one another who have hurt, when we forgive someone who's hurt us, we put on display God's forgiveness of us. When we take care of someone who needs it, we put on display how God has taken care of us. We're going to take communion in a minute. Sister Bree is going to come up here and um, lead us through it. But what we're doing uh, as we take communion is together uh, as a family. It's called communion because you do it in community. As a family, we are remembering and proclaiming what Jesus did for us on the cross. We're, We're celebrating this adoption into his family together. So Bree's going to come up and lead us in communion. Uh, And as we close today, I just want you to think, how has God called you to a new family? Whether you have a a good family at home or a a rough family at home, what is is God calling you to with these other believers? How might he be challenging you to step out in faith? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your son, for adopting us into your family, for forgiving our sins, 
It's showing us what it is to love one another. Lord, I pray that as we two churches become one church, I pray that there would be a supernatural love for one another here. That oftentimes church doesn't feel like family. Lord, I pray here it would. I pray here people would take care of one another. That it wouldn't just be one hour on Sunday, but that it would be a lifestyle that we commit to. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.